Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. We are one movement, one people, one family, and one glorious nation under God. And together, we will make America powerful again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. And we will make America great again. Well, good evening, friends. It's great to be with you. Pro-life leader Frank Pavone here. Welcome to Praying for America. Today I have a little bit of a different setup tonight because I want to go over some points that will be more easily conveyed if I put them on the whiteboard here. And it's about the Electoral College because we're going to continue our study of Mark Levin's book, The Democrat Party Hates America, and they sure do. And uh, they uh, hate us and they hate President Trump and they're a bunch of fools and ignoramuses. But uh, we already knew that. They prove it every day. We're going to pray here from, we're going to start off with Psalm 119. I want to continue in this wonderful psalm that is a testimony to uh, God's law. And then go into some points with you that uh, we've, um, we've touched on this some months ago. We did, a, we did a program about the Electoral College. But being that we're going through Mark's book and he has a section in it, I wanted to return to the theme and, and give you some good talking points so that... Uh, you can discuss with your fellow citizens that, hey, you know, this is one of the beauty, uh, the beautiful tools our Constitution gives us to preserve our freedom. And the Democrats want to destroy it. They want to destroy the Electoral College. Why? Because they want to destroy the Constitution. Why? Because they want to destroy America. Why? Because they hate America. Okay. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's go to Psalm 119, starting today in verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Let us pray. Eternal Father, you have bestowed on our founders such wisdom that they have given us a constitution that provides the blueprint defending our freedom and governing ourselves and resisting tyranny. But Lord, it requires wisdom ongoing in the hearts of our citizens. And so we ask you tonight again for that gift of wisdom. We ask you for a love of your law. And we ask you tonight, Lord, help us understand this provision of our Constitution by which we elect our president, the Electoral College. Help us to see the wisdom in how this tool shapes American politics and leads us in the direction of unity. Bless us, Lord, that we may have a nation where everyone's voice is heard and where everyone's freedom is maintained. 
we pray through the Lord of all nations and the judge of the world, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. So as I said, this is uh, from Mark Levin's book. It's in the section on the Constitution, how the Democrats hate the Constitution. And there's a young man by the name of Trent England who wrote this very, very short but very, very informative uh, booklet called Why We Must Defend the Electoral College. I know Trent and, and uh, in fact, ex expect to see him uh, in some meetings coming up very soon once again. Uh, but he's a great defender of the Electoral College, and I'm drawing from, from these materials to uh, share these thoughts with you here tonight. Okay, so we've all heard the phrase... And it sounds pretty good. One person, one vote. Does it come from our Constitution? Is this a provision of our United States Constitution? Actually, the answer is no. This is not in the Constitution. The Constitution has a very different version of government, a very different way of representing and codifying the will of the people. And that's not simply one person, one vote, as if, oh, we just, 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 you know, everybody together, what's the will of the people? Just tally it all up. Democracy in the most technical sense of the term. That's not the kind of system of government that we have ever had here in America. In fact, it's not normal throughout the world. Most countries have systems that are much more nuanced than this. Why do they have to be much more nuanced than this? Not only because one person, one vote is, is tremendously unwieldy, more than might meet the eye but also because sheer numbers do not adequately express what is good for the majority of the people in a country. Why? Because you have such diversity in a country. You have such diversity, and our founders were facing this, this particular problem. Look, they didn't want to set up a parliament, but neither did they set up direct democracy. They, they found a way to encompass the values of both. Okay, so they, they, they did not set up direct democracy, which is what is expressed in that phrase, one person, one vote. And they did not set up a parliament either. What they set up was a system of representative government, which took, takes account of the will of the people. You and I do get to vote, and that does make a difference but which then funnels and balances those votes in different ways. Let's see what we're talking about here. What does the Electoral College provide for? The Electoral College provides that there is a group of electors who will choose our president. Now, how do these people get to choose? Well, they choose the president and the vice president. Okay, how would these people get to do that? 
the people vote in each state to choose the state's electors. So let's presume that in the 2024 election, we're going to have Trump and Biden. When you cast your vote for President Trump, you are actually choosing that slate of electors who are committed to vote for President Trump when the day comes that the electors vote. That happens sometime in December, by the way. Okay, the election takes place in November. The electors gather in December. You are choosing the electors. They're actually going to cast the definitive vote for president. And then Congress is going to, to uh, certify it. So you're voting for the electors. You, I mean, you don't know their names. But the each party, the Democrat, so, so the Republican Party, of whom Trump is uh, the candidate, Democrat Party, Biden the candidate, set up their slates of electors in each of the states. And they say, okay, you are the people now who are, if the people choose you to do so, if the voters choose you to do so, then you will get together with all the other electors around the country and you will vote for president. And of course, there is a, there is a commitment then on the electors' part. Yes, I will do as as the voters wish, and I will vote for uh, that candidate that I'm who for in whose slate I, I now belong. All right. How many electors from each state? Well, you know the magic number for winning a um, for winning the presidency, you have to get 270 electoral votes. That's the that's the the number you have to get for for victory because that's just over the majority of electors, that the numbers of electors are calculated in each state by by what? By the number of senators, U.S. senators, that is, which for every state is two. Now, that's an important fact in understanding the Electoral College. And then the number of representatives in the House of Representatives, which number varies uh, according to the number of congressional districts in that state, which varies according to the population. So, since every state has two, two U.S. senators, and every state has at least one congressional district, the minimum amount of electors that a particular state can have is three, and it can all go all the way up to like the California is the largest with something like 53, 54 electoral votes. All right. That's the scenario. Understand what this does is it requires, and this is the key point right here. Let me put it here and then we can think about it a little bit more. But if every state has electoral votes and there's a limit to those electoral votes, then here's the key point. Here's the, the the value, if you will, that the electoral college is preserving. That a presidential candidate, 
someone, keep in mind, who's saying, I want to lead the whole country, because you're just as much the president of Iowa and Mississippi as you are of New York and California. And now we're getting to the core of the matter. The presidential candidate, the presidential campaign, the political party have to do what? Have to appeal, have to win over, and therefore have to understand and value to the whole country in all its diversity. In other words, they've got to figure out a way to get the votes from the the more rural states as well as from the urban population centers. They have to figure out a way to get the votes from the more conservative states as, as also from the less conservative states, the red as well as the blue, the purple, and everything in between. They've got to appeal to a wide range of demographics, backgrounds, values. They've got to appeal to the whole country. Why does that make sense? Because they're asking to be president of the whole country. If you're running for president of just one region, or you see how this differs when it comes down to a governor, a U.S. senator, or a U.S. congressman, they only have to run and persuade their a majority of voters in their district. In their district. Or in the case of a senator or a governor, in their state. And the state is likely to be much more homogenous than the country, although certain states you've got, I mean, California and New York even, you've got rural as well as urban, but you have ideologically, uh, obviously, you lean left in those states. But you see the point I'm making. The president, running for president is a way different thing than running for governor, for example. And so you have to appeal to the whole country. And that, the Electoral College, therefore, shapes American politics. What does it require? It requires reaching out. It requires coalitions. It requires compromise. It requires listening to what the people of a more conservative rural area are saying they need from their president, as well as listening to what people in a bustling city are going to say they need from their president. Why does the Electoral College, or we should say, how does the Electoral College manage to do this? I want to give you a couple of numbers. Now, some states decide earlier than others. What do we mean? Well, California and New York. They're blue states. Their electoral votes, the way things are now, determined by the way they have been deciding for a number of years now, good number of years, they're going to award their electors to the, uh, to the, uh, to the Democrats. They're going to vote for the Democrat in the, uh, in the, in the race. But that doesn't mean it's set in stone. That doesn't mean it's a dogma. That means they've come to a decision as a state, as a majority of the people, over time, 
And it also means over time that too can shift. States decide in, at different timetables. And so you have a situation where other states, they can go one way in one election, another way in another election. And so you've got states like, well, this presidential election, as I've told you, is going to go through the path of, of what? What are the three states? Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia. This election is going to go through those pathways because they could, they, could, they, they could go either way. Various other states can go either way, too. But what political analysts and campaigns are always doing is they are calculating what they call the electoral math. When you consider all the blue states, those that are very reliably going to give their electors to the Democrat, all the red states, those that are very reliably going to give their electors to the red, you factor in those numbers from the start. You hard code those numbers. And then you're left with, okay, well, which are the ones with that are in the middle? Which are the ones that can go either way? And then you look at which one of the ones that are go either way, and then you analyze it deeper. Which way are they leaning one way or the other? And But you're not just doing that. You're counting as you go. And you're saying, okay, how many electoral votes are at stake in these states that could go either way? And then um, you notice Wisconsin, okay, Georgia. Georgia's not California. Georgia's not New York. Let me give you a couple of uh, go according to, uh, oh, oh, well, let me just summarize it this because we're going to run out of time. If you take the most populous cities. So what are you talking about? New York, of course. Another really big one, Los Angeles. Throw in a couple of more. Chicago, Philadelphia. These are all Democrat cities, right? Democrat strongholds. Big population centers. You realize that the populations of these cities... I think it was 20% of Hillary Clinton's vote was just from these two cities. You take the most populous um, cities, they dwarf some of the swing states. So you would have, without the electoral college, if you just said, oh, yeah, we're going to just have, we're just going to have the people vote coast to coast, and whichever candidate gets the most votes wins. If you were to do that, then the populous urban areas with their typically left-leaning ideology would dominate every election. And now you're not representing the whole country. You're not representing the whole country. Instead, having to get, because the number of electoral votes that a, that a uh, state will have will have a cap if that state has a certain number of congressional districts then no matter how populous those districts become this year or next year or the year after no matter how populous the rest of the state becomes that electoral number is set until uh, then of course then there's another census if census every 10 years and then the numbers can adjust a little bit. So it's not that it ignores completely what the population is. But California is going to have its number of electoral votes and, and, and every other state is going to have its electoral votes. 
And it, 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 the electoral vote is not the same as counting the population directly. And therefore, you have a, a, a if you will, that state claims its, it claims its place in deciding the election. It's like it holds those votes and the people of that state get to decide which candidate those votes go to, no matter how many people in the other states decide otherwise. You see how, how it works? So no matter how many it can be outdwarfed, the state itself can be outdwarfed by a single city, and yet that state maintains its say in the election because just the sheer population does not give that state more electoral votes at the present time. That only happens over, over time and doesn't change that quickly or that easily. This is the way that the Electoral College protects all of us and each state and all the different varieties of uh, lifestyles and needs and, and demographics and religious beliefs and values and so forth in all these different parts of the country. You know, there's another thing, too, to keep in mind about the Electoral College. What if there's fraud? What if there's fraud? By having each state maintain its place in the outcome of the election, what it does is also contains uh, electoral disputes. There may be an electoral dispute in a particular state. There may be a, a dispute about the outcome in a particular state. And sometimes there may even need to be a recount in a particular place. Can you imagine if the presidential election were simply a matter of counting the votes from coast to coast, what kind of, of unmanageable chaos it would be if, a, if the question of election fraud were to come up? Because fraud could be could be could be uh, undertaken in a variety of places, and someone starts to doubt whether the grand total is actually accurate. If there's a close election, what are you going to do to resolve that? The way electoral college works, you isolate the problem in a certain state, and you resolve it. It may come down to remember Florida, for example. In the year 2000, that, that, that election came down to recounting some votes in Florida. The point is, you can't have a national recount. Can you imagine, remember, if those of you who remember how the Florida thing unfolded in 2000, you had people sitting at the desk examining the, the paper ballots, looking at the chads and the hanging chads. And the, can you imagine having to recount votes from coast to coast? It doesn't... Uh, it's not a manageable situation. But the key thing, again, is the president has to reach out to everyone. And this is a key. That's at that, and that's essential to freedom, is it not? That we are all... Actually, the Electoral College ends up being more democratic than the, uh, than the idea of just a national popular vote. We'll talk in another show about how this notion of national popular vote is being pushed among the Democrats to try as a way of trying to destroy the Electoral College. We don't have time here tonight to examine that, but we will in the future. Um, but when you, when you, it's kind of counterintuitive, but when you examine what could happen with just a pure national popular vote, you realize that the whole election could more easily be swayed by just one influential or regional group of people 
or one ideology or one charismatic uh, uh, figure uh, that, um, again, overwhelms the voices of, of, uh, of smaller areas of the nation. To secure, to get as close as possible to securing the true participation and representation of everybody, this is the best way that anybody has come up with. And let's make sure we both understand it and preserve it and defend it. This is the way our founders said our president would be chosen. This is the Constitution, and it's there for a very, very good and powerful reason. Let's pray now for the defense of this particular provision of our our form of government, and let's pray that those efforts to undermine it may fail uh, for the the ultimate good of our nation. Father, coming back to you today, our founders' wisdom when they set this system up. We thank you for that. We, we, we ask, Lord, that we may impart to ourselves and to one another and to our children and our grandchildren an understanding and appreciation of the Electoral College. Lord, this is wisdom. This is freedom. This is security. This is protection. Thank you, Lord God. But we don't understand these things as we should. Lord God, we have too many people in our nation, they don't even know what the the three branches of government are, much less why we have an electoral college. Lord God, we, we stand today against the efforts of those who would undermine or try to abolish the electoral college. It has already survived many, many attempts to amend the Constitution or throw this system out, and none of them have worked. Lord, there's a reason for that. You speak through history. Your wisdom endures through all generations. Let it endure in our generation as well. And does do our part to educate our fellow citizens into how our government works. Because, Lord, the better we understand how our government works, the better we'll be able to defend it. The better we'll be able to work it. If we understand how it works, we'll work it. Father, thank you, because... We engage in our system of government, Lord, not just as citizens of Earth, not just as citizens of America. We engage in this process as citizens of your heavenly kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven, St. Paul declared, and we declare it again today. Thank you, Lord, for ushering us in to your kingdom. Continue to make us grow in our heavenly citizenship and in faithfulness to you. And now we pray in the words that Jesus gave us, our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, God bless you. Have a great weekend. Long live the Constitution. Long live the Electoral College. Long live America. Let's resolve again to make America great. God bless you, and we'll talk to you Monday. 
Hello, this is Abby Johnson of Unplanned the Movie. You know me as a longtime supporter of Priest for Life and of Father Frank Pavone. And I just want to encourage you as someone who knows of the great work of this organization, please continue to stand strong. Please continue to support this mission. It is so needed now more than ever. Thank you so much for all of your support. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.